Episode 62 Bright, stunning sun Warming the cat through the window Don't fall for it Listen to that wind Hey now, hey now Don't accuse me of being a wannabe Although I may have resembled an MW And I've heard it more than once But this episode gives you a peek into 1980s Rhode Island Running around at that time was thrilling, breathtaking, beautiful, and dangerous as hell. I am your host, Jess. Welcome into the Patuxent General. I was lucky enough to crawl all over our little burg into an awful lot of dark places and live to tell the tale without too many scars or getting arrested, or even though it was close, mugged. But more about that in a minute. How about guacamole, Philippe and Jorge chicken, an Irish old-fashioned, and a spooky Biltmore story? But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These bitchin' kids are so totally tubular that they are the shoulder pads, pastel colors, drop ball earrings, leg warmers, synthesized music, mind-blowing music videos, and wildly dramatic eye makeup that is the time-traveling, freaking cool Patuxent General, without whom we would just be lame wastoids. So thank you. If you'd like to be one of these wicked freaking awesome townies, check out our Patreon page or simply follow the links in the show notes. But until then, it's 1980 New York-style guacamole. Enjoy. In 1984, I may have slept in Cranston at the house on the corner, but I lived in Providence. I worked in Davol Square, which was a hotbed of coolness and activity at the time. I was employed at Baby Watson Cheesecake. I know what you're thinking. Tough life. Cheesecake for breakfast and lunch. Well, that did happen. But I was a teen and biked everywhere, thank goodness. Davol Square had just the right amount of industrial architecture with the 1980s chaotic color bursts. The store next door to Baby Watson was a magazine stand and smoke shop. Once a week after being paid, I would buy my clove cigarettes and imported British magazine and a new paper so that I could check out Philippe and Jorge. But more about that later. We're here to talk about a recipe so yummy, if weirdly yankified, that I was pushed to give it to the Harvard Square business that was an offshoot of Baby Watson. But I didn't. I saved it for you. So, get ready for Cheesecake Shop Guacamole. For this recipe, you will need... Four ripe avocados, just seeded and halved in a bowl. Two tablespoons fresh lemon juice. One tablespoon Worcestershire sauce. Two tablespoons crushed chopped garlic. Two tablespoons Tabasco. Two fresh tomatoes, diced, salt and pepper to taste. Right off the bat, the lemon juice that I was given back then was in a jar on the shelf. The chopped garlic was from a large jar and the Tabasco from a huge container. You and I can do better, however. If stuck, go for it. You can say you're being retro. The idea is to mash everything together, except the tomatoes. Mash and mix until combined, but still chunky. Add the tomatoes, stir once, and off you go. We made this twice a day, or whenever anyone asks for guacamole in their wrap. I can eat a batch at a sitting with chips. A starter, perhaps, for Philippe and Jorge's chicken? When I opened the new paper, I tore into Philippe and Jorge's cool, cool world. I was dying to find out the hottest spots and to tune into the heart of Providence. 
My favorites were The Living Room, Lupo's, and The Last Call Saloon, which all got mentions as well as a dozen other local restaurants and bars. If you wanted to know who hated whom in politics, gloves off, read P&J. Chip Young wrote under the moniker Philippe and Bruce McRae under Jorge. However, one haunt mentioned over and over was Leo's. John Rector opened Leo's in 1974, whose self-proclaimed most distinctive feature in the restaurant was a 19-foot painting by Dan Gosh. John Rector says to Beth Adler in a Brown University interview that the young adults played there regularly, which cemented the connection between Leo's and Rudy Cheeks in the public's eye, also known as Jorge. Seeing as Rector and our dynamic duo became friends, it is no surprise that a dish named after them was part of the menu, and also included in the Rhode Island Sampler, a cookbook put out by the American Cancer Society in 1988. This is what I bring you today. Philippe and Jorge Chicken, named for them, I believe, due to the Pernod, often mentioned in their articles. I hope you enjoy this little slice of 1980s Providence. For this recipe, you will need... Six boneless chicken breasts, skin on. One half pound of fennel. Two or three sweet red peppers. Two shallots. And a quarter of a cup of olive oil. One cup of white wine. Half a teaspoon of thyme. Two teaspoons of tomato paste. One half cup of pernod liqueur. One cup black olives. And one cup of green olives. Slice the fennel into quarter inch strips, removing the leaves. Slice the peppers into quarter-inch strips. Mince the shallots. In a large skillet, sauté the breasts briefly in olive oil until lightly browned. Remove from the pan and keep warm. Add the fennel and cook covered 15 minutes until tender. Add the peppers and shallots and cook 5 minutes. Add the wine, pernod, and tomato paste and stir well. Cook 10 minutes on high until the sauce is slightly thickened. Reduce the heat. Add the thyme, olives, and chicken breasts. Cook until breasts are cooked through about 5 or 10 minutes and add salt and pepper to taste. And enjoy! And now for a harrowing story of 1980s stupidity. It was midsummer in Rhode Island in 1985. I was an independent theater major who thought I was so street smart from college in Boston. A friend whom I dated asked me to go with him to the yacht club party and that we could go out on the sailboat after. Hey, free shrimp and drinks and all I have to do is be polite and hang with my buddy? I'm in. We spent all day out on the water drinking tangray and tonics, eating shrimp and strawberries, swimming and hanging out on the beach. I have a great time. I'm truly exhausted. And we decide to leave to change at his dad's house and then drive back to Cranston where I live. I say I only have what I have on, but I'll wait outside while he changes. He leaves. I should tell you at this point that I'm wearing a black one-piece 1980s tiny bathing suit, a short jean skirt, and flip-flops. No purse, just cash in my pocket. What am I going to need or not mind losing in the water? And not quite enough for bus fare. My pal returns and says, get out of the car. My dad took my keys. I'm grounded. I think that I might be able to talk some sense into his dad, so I asked to talk to him. I introduced myself, explained that I live in Cranston and need a ride home as I'm not really dressed. He replies that the last bus to Providence is in 10 minutes down the street, and he asked me to leave. Nice. I get on the bus and convince the bus driver to take my underpayment and let me ride to Providence about 18 miles away. 
When I arrive, Kennedy Plaza is very busy. People everywhere. As many as ten are sitting on the statue in the middle. I move to my bench, marked to take me to Cranston. While I'm sitting, I feel eyes on me. I look up and see a man lock eyes with me and get up from the statue to turn in my direction. I get up and see him start to move towards me. I do not know this man. I move quickly. I cross the street and get a bus in between us. I walk along it, using it as cover until I get to the front of it and then cross to the next street. As I reach the other side, I look back to see him searching. We meet eyes and he breaks out into a full run at me. I don't care that I have flip-flops on. I don't care that I'm in my bathing suit top. I run. He starts to close in on me after half a block, so I pick up my tight jeans skirt and run for my life and start screaming. I yell at the top of my lungs, Help me! He's going to kill me! Help me! Fire! Rape! I ran for three city blocks to where I knew there were a bunch of payphones. I called my friend and screamed at her to get in the car and come and save me three more blocks away at Davall Square, and I hung up. I turned around again to see him spot me and break out into a run again. This time, I have a destination. I used to work at Davall, and I know where the security guard sits during the day, so I full tilt make a break for it. I get about one block with him in hot pursuit when I pass a bar. A slightly swervy gent walks out and is unnerved to see me fleeing at him. He asks what's going on, and I give him the breathless, trying to kill me, don't know him, you gotta help me. The tipsy gent says gallantly, wait here, I'll take care of this, and runs around the corner. It takes me a fraction of a second to realize I don't know either of these dudes. Screw it. I ran the rest of the way to Davall, where I talked to the security guy, who assured me it was all my imagination. Nice. But best of all, my emergency call came through and picked me up and gave me new shoes, which I had lost on the run. The moral being, always bring spare shoes to the beach. Well, it actually was St. Patrick's Day when I wrote this, and so the trying was oh so delicious. I found a half a dozen recipes for this, but I put together my favorite parts to make this super fun Irish old fashioned. Let's start with a stout simple syrup. I wanted some for later, so for this you will need one cup of turbinado or some other raw sugar. One cup of stout. I used Guinness. I mean, go big or stay home. Heat these gently together in a pan until the sugar melts. Then, cool to use in the following epic cocktail. For this Irish Old Fashioned, you will need two to two and a half ounces whiskey, your choice. I use Jameson this time. Three quarters of an ounce stout simple syrup, a dash of black walnut bitters, a dash of Aztec chocolate bitters, an orange for zesting, a large fancy ice cube and an old-fashioned glass, or several ordinary large ice cubes and a short tumbler glass, whatever you got. Mix the bitters and the simple syrup in the bottom of the glass. Then add the whiskey and the big ice cube. Stir until the outside of the glass is cold. Then take a good-sized piece of orange zest. Squeeze it over the drink, then rub it over the rim and throw it in. And there you have it. An Irish old-fashioned. Mmm, love it.
I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. The Harrowing Hauntings of the Biltmore Hotel. It is a well-known fact here in Rhode Island that the former Biltmore Hotel in Providence, which is now called the Graduate Hotel, has had as troubled and as turbulent a history as the mythical Overlook Hotel in Stephen King's The Shining. A brief history is required for you to understand the gravity and magnitude of this classic 1920s Art Deco masterpiece of architecture. Now, the rumors in folklore state that in 1918, one Johann Lise Weisskopf was open and known worshipper of the devil himself financed the hotel's construction, supposedly to create a citadel which would educate the masses to the benefits of Satanism. It was rumored that he had installed chicken coops on the roof of the hotel to ensure there would be plenty of blood sacrifices. Now, all evidence suggests that this person never existed, and the Biltmore used massively pooled public funding to be built. And the chicken coop? Well, it was in fact for sacrificing chickens. Let it be known that they were being sacrificed in the kitchens for dinner, not the rumored altars in the basement for Beelzebub. Despite that, rumors persisted of weekly sacrifices, secret meetings, underworld dealings, and outright redroom. The building was built in 1922 by the architectural firm of Warren and Westmore, famous for designing Grand Central Station, and you can see the influence on the vaulted ceilings and elaborate chandeliers. During the Prohibition era, the hotel was used as a speakeasy and frequented by many characters of ill repute. In 1947, it was purchased by the Sheridan and then resold in 1968. And in 1975, it closed down and remained vacant for four years until Mayor Vincent Buddy Cianci designated the hotel as a historical landmark and worked with the city businessmen to revitalize it. It reopened in 1979. Folklore declares that a man during the financial fall of the 1930s jumped from the 14th floor window and haunts the hotel. Research indicates that a woman did, in fact, take her life in 1940 by jumping from an upper floor of the Biltmore to her death on the concrete below. Also, since that woman jumped, there have been many reports over the years of people looking out their hotel windows who have seen someone falling past, outside, and hit the ground below. It is reported to the front desk and police are called, but each time, no victim has been found. If you spend any amount of time in the hallways at night alone, you are bound to hear the noise of a door slamming or laughter from a party long since dispersed. At any given time, a door may lock or unlock itself behind you. You may even see a ghostly apparition walking the corridors looking for a chicken to sacrifice. Come to the Providence graduate and decide for yourself. As a side note, in the 1990s, I may or may not have been taken in that secret door in the back in the Biltmore where the speakeasy used to be. Food for thought. Perhaps that's a story for another time.
Thank you once again for joining us on this Providence-packed edition of the Patuxent General. Perhaps you have suspect Providence adventures of your own you'd like to share. If so, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. We are wicked psyched to hear from you. And like, I'll meet you right back here for another wicked awesome Patuxent General. A Something for Posterity production pre-recorded in Patuxent.